0: of Sweden in Focus, the locals' news podcast. On Saturday, we had an interview with Peter Gerlach, an economist with the Swedish Trade Union Confederation, LO or LO. And we had a lot left over from a wide-ranging conversation on topics, including predictions that Sweden is facing a mild recession and what that will entail, how to tackle high energy prices and rising interest rates, Sweden's low taxes on capital, whether the government should pause the mortgage payment requirement, what the government can do to stimulate the economy, and how international workers fit into the Swedish model. Before we get to the interview, I just wanna say, That this podcast is made possible by members of The Local. So a big, big thank you to everyone who supports us. We're an independent publisher and your support really is what funds all our journalism. As a member, you get unrestricted access to all articles on The Local Sweden, as well as our eight other country sites. And it might also be good to be aware that some of our newsletters are just for members, including the Inside Sweden newsletter, which comes out on Saturdays and gives you the editor's insights on the most important news stories in Sweden. If you're not yet a member but are considering joining, you can find a special membership offer for podcast listeners at thelocal.se forward slash podcast offer.
2: This month, we're seeing a sharp increase in people being given notice uh, on their jobs. You know, that must start feeding into their thinking, surely.
3: Yeah, we should say we, we don't know so much about these new notices yet, because uh, we don't know what sectors or what jobs it actually concerns. It's secret until the companies communicate that they are uh, noticing all these people. So uh, what happened is that uh, over the first two weeks of February, notices went up to like 12,000. And if you compare that last February, I think the whole February was a uh, can't remember but it was like between one and two thousand uh, notices over the whole February. So this is an increase of like 10, 20 times maybe because this was two weeks. So yeah, we believe that we will see increasing unemployment because the economy is shrinking and that could affect the labor market in three ways basically. Either you see increasing unemployment. If we produce more we don't need as much labor than when we have unemployment go up, or we see that the employers are cutting hours for their employees and that we've seen also h&m for instance during this last month uh, have been uh, heavily cutting hours for for their workers and thirdly what can happen is is that the employers keep workers in place but produce less so productivity goes down what we expect is all of these three things to happen that you know the economy will shrink so some people will lose their jobs some people will lose some hours and some people will stay on but not be as productive and how that Balance is struck is hard to say really, right. but now that we see some, we've seen a lot of cutting hours. We've seen a lot of now notices coming in,
2: yeah. and we've seen particularly some particularly
3: high-profile
2: um, layoffs at Spotify, for example, yeah. which you know has been got a lot of reporting. But I think it's important with these notices, Vashal as it is in Swedish. It's like at first reading, it can look like there's a certain number of people being laid off, but oh. you you but you give notice yeah. to a number of people. And then you negotiate, and the final number may that, that actually lose their jobs in the end may be lower.
3: Right? No, it's much lower. Yeah, uh, I can't remember what its average is, but it's cl- much lower.
2: So it's important to bear in mind when seeing these statistics, because, like that's not actually the number of people necessarily being laid off. And,
3: and at the same time, you know, notices from Spotify, for instance, I don't expect them to have a hard time finding a new new job. There's, you know, a lot of demand for that kind of workforce. So notices is also not. Necessarily, an increase in unemployment.
2: No, although uh, bear in mind that a lot of our listeners are who, who work in tech companies are on work permits that are particularly connected ah, yeah. to their jobs. That's and, a good So they they also perhaps um, won't feature in the unemployment statistics. But it's a pretty painful yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, experience. Yeah, I, not... You
0: sometimes hear the worry that if wages go up. Um, you risk a sort of wage yeah. price spiral do you see do you see any risk of that
3: yeah and that's also one of the arguments why we don't find the Riksbank's policy to be uh, uh, to make sense the Swedish wage formation does not really work in the sense that standard economic models may be assumed We have now a new round of wage negotiations starting pretty soon and what we see from that is that they are not trying to accommodate the price increases and in in the wage increases really. We also see that when we look at what we called wage drift, which is the, the increase of wages above the negotiated levels, we see no real strong wage drift, even though we've had, you know, these, the Riksbank have over the last year expected wage drift to go up up and up. and. It has not materialized at all. So wage increases have been lower than the Riksbank have expected all the time. And even though that's the case, they're increasing interest rates more than they said that they would. Because, I mean, the Swedish unions, which, you know, you're, and you're
2: you're in one of them, and your counterparts in other countries would generally be a bit more aggressive on wage increases. What is it that makes the Swedish unions so conservative when it comes to pushing for large wage increases?
3: I would say if we compare the demands we've put forth uh, in this round of negotiations. It's pretty similar to what we see in in the result being in a lot of countries. Uh, So I, I Uh, For instance, a lot of countries say that, you know, they achieved, you know, six and a half percent over two years or whatever, Mm. but it's always over longer periods of time. And we have now said that we want to uh, uh, see wages go up by 4.4 percent, basically, uh, plus a certain boost for the lowest paid jobs, which means that the average in total becomes like 4.6 or 4.7 percent. And the thing is that we, we have never looked at the inflation rate, the current inflation. We have always looked at the inflation target of the Swedish economy, of the Riksbank, which is 2%. This means that all, over all these years, when the Riksbank haven't reached a target of 2%, we've actually had higher real wage growth than we would have had if we've just targeted the actual inflation. Mm. So over time, this has been, over the last decade, it's been very, very good for us that this is the case. Currently... It's worse for us. Right. But for the economy in general, we've, you know, the experience of, of trying to you know, uh, hunt price levels with wage increases has uh, been pretty bad. From our perspective, the wage difference between white-collar and blue-collar jobs need to decrease. Really, so if they would start demanding more, we need to start demanding even more. And you know, we don't want to pit workers against workers, but we are saying very clearly that everyone needs to assume responsibility in this this environment, especially all the CEOs. And we've just produced a report this week that concluded that the highest paid CEOs in Sweden the 50 highest paid CEOs have further increased the the wage gap or their income gap to the uh, the average industrial worker for instance where we've had we follow their incomes relative to an average industry worker in Sweden and it's now up to 69 times as much as the average income of the industry worker at the moment and it's been last year it was 65 times so it's it's going up 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 and this is clearly not sustainable it's definitely not sustainable if you want to have responsible unions that look at the economy and and what they think is the best over time for the economy but you can't do that over time if someone else is trying to 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 you know carve a larger part of the share or the larger share of the economy all, all the time for them
0: so this week finally saw the long-awaited introduction of the energy cost subsidies for consumers is this something that elu welcomes and is there anything else you think the government should be doing to bring down energy prices
3: we clearly welcome that as i said the electricity cost is of course one of the, the largest problems in terms of the household budget at the moment we have been critical of it being that slow it's unique in europe that we haven't paid out the support yet and also i think that some economists might find the system very clever that you don't know in advance how much the, you will get in in, uh, in support and you you, you your, this is presented to you after you have set your consumption of electricity and this is should produce maximalist you know incentive to to cut demand but the thing is that you know, households need to be able to plan their economy. This is, you know, ridiculous. That also hurts the economy going forward because it's a very uncertain environment for the households and that decreases spending even further and further cuts uh, household consumption more than would be necessary if if the, the rules of the game were a bit clearer from the start.
0: Elu has talked about how the state should intervene to keep prices down. How do you envisage that happening? I would
3: basically, what we have now is... a. We have accepted the prices as they are, and the government has accepted the prices as they are, and they try to help people out after the fact, ex post. You could also intervene more to cut prices from the start. There are things that can be done. Uh, it's a bit complex, but there are things that can be done that would reduce prices probably more and that would both cut inflation by reducing prices directly. Also, so maybe that puts some pressure away from the Riksbank to in- increase interest rates and also remove some, some need to, uh, to support households after the fact. You know, these high prices, of course, in the other end of the high prices are, you know, very, very high profits because basically we have the same electricity production structure in Sweden as we had before this crisis. It's uh, you know, the same production costs, really, but with this huge... Profits instead now due to the prices going up without costs going up so within the eu the the countries have agreed on a scheme to try to to tax these excess windfall profits then each country is supposed to to create their own tax structure for for doing this and the swedish proposal is I don't know, as far as we estimate, they will basically collect half a percent of these excess profits. And when we compare it to Finland, for instance, the, the Finnish proposal is 20 to 50 times more uh, like strong or c- collects 20 to 50 times more resources than the Swedish proposal. <laughs> uh, so, so, you know, we have this opportunity if we want to correct after the prices are set and try to, you know, collect the profits from the the excess profits and try to support the households. We're just doing part of it at the moment. We're supporting households, but we're not collecting profits. And if we can't collect profits, then we should try to intervene in the market more to reduce the prices from the start and then reduce profits that way and reduce the need uh, from the households so in, in the election campaign the left
0: party was saying that sweden should be setting its own prices is that something that you think
3: i think i think they're pointing out a very relevant problem because you know we we are not depending on on russian gas that we have never been and oh. now we're hurt for german energy policy basically and this is not a sustainable way forward i think uh, but the problem is that The Nordic energy market have been highly integrated for a very long time. It was really the model for the European energy market that have evolved over the last couple of years where you integrate the the whole European uh, energy market and they looked a lot at the Nordic market. And the thing is that in 2021, for instance, Norway opened one huge cable to UK and one huge cable to Germany. Before that, most of Norwegian electricity flowed through sweden and denmark now everything goes to the continent and to the uk on the other way around and the thing is that if you want to kind of set swedish prices and limit exports to the continent you need to have a nordic market kind of integrated that's because that's how it's been working a a long time really it's not just you know we cut the cable to germany because we don't own most of the cables to Germany. It's like Norwegian and Danish and Baltic, you know. It's so integrated that it's very hard to see how you would do it practically. But there is a huge problem in Sweden being so dependent on continental energy policy, uh, setting the prices for the Swedish electricity market. When when Sweden is producing an electricity surplus. Yeah, we have had the highest electricity exports ever, net exports this year, and we have had the highest prices as well.
2: So Sweden had no say in Germany's decision to, for instance, cut all its nuclear power stations out before they were before time but um, we'd suffer the consequences of yeah.
0: it. Just hearing you talking about the windfall profits and how other companies tax these more aggressively than Sweden it got me thinking about um, our guest here a couple of weeks ago we had Andreas Servenka in and he was he was talking about you know Sweden's low levels of, of wealth tax and um, corporate tax um, and I, I'm not sure you're able to answer this because these aren't things that the social democrats are pushing to reintroduce but does l it does is always pushing to you are pushing lots. to raise yeah. them yeah
3: if you compared within the us C D, for instance there are these comparisons of, of level of capital taxation as we usually always come out of the bottom of them even though we're a you know generally a high tax country from the lo side we really believe that we will need more tax incomes Going forward, not only for increasing spending on defense and, and stuff that is ramping up at the moment, but also just to, to be able to support the welfare state in, and, and the, the, the care. Part of the economy, which will be growing with the demographic shift that we see now. And we think that these, um, you know, the higher taxes that need to be collected must be more of a capital intensive uh, taxation. We have these different loopholes in the capital taxation structure that is. Uh, it's called the 312 regler. Uh, it's, it's basically a, a, a tax loophole for capital taxation. And we want to close that much more. And we also want to increase taxation on wealth, uh, not only on incomes, but also on existing wealth.
2: But do you, I mean, a, a lot of people who would agree with you on capital taxation say yes, and we should compensate for that to to a certain extent with lower income taxes because um, Sweden has comparatively high income taxes. Now, what does, but LO, Is that, that's probably not Elo's position?
3: Uh, I think that that's not our main, I, I mean, that would be an improvement uh, <laughs> but compared to what we have now. But in general, I think we're not that worried of the taxation of incomes at the moment. For instance, if you earn 50,000 a month uh, in Sweden, uh, what you actually pay on that, on average, is 26%. People don't know that. People think it's much more. But it's 26%. And then you add that most of households also have some debt maybe and have some interest rates. Deductions, mm. and they also maybe use uh, rut or rootaldrags sometimes. Yeah, so these yeah. Uh, tax
2: breaks for yeah. per, for, for cleaning Hustle and household h- h- services and, and services. building and yeah.
3: So on. yeah. So so you can remove some of that, and and maybe then someone earning fifty thousand maybe is taxed around twenty percent, okay,
2: uh, on average. But that last amount of income, if you're earning fifty thousand, you're lost. I don't know, ten thousand. You're lost ten thousand on that. Is, is taxed oh, at a much higher rate. Your marginal tax rate is quite.
3: High. Yeah, the marginal tax rate a bit bit. bit of course but i think uh, the economic evidence of that having a big impact on the labor market is very very weak when we we've produced several reports that show that that you don't see i mean it's it's pure logic most people earning a lot of money can't adjust their working times very much you're you're basically on a, you're not on a schedule M- maybe some doctors can mm-hmm. they they're like a case of that mm. uh, but but besides that most professional white collar workers uh, you know they don't control how much they work basically right. uh that comes with the job and the income comes with the job mm. so so you don't have a, a, a change on the uh, on the margin in that sense if you reduce the the marginal tax rate and the incentive to go into a high income profession is so strong it's no one saying that, you know, I don't want to study at the Stockholm School of Economics because so then I would be paying a higher marginal tax rate when I earn sixty, seventy thousand 70,000 a month. Uh, that's not the case. We have no problem recruiting to these educations.
2: If we had this discussion with uh, SOC, which is the white collar union, yeah, yeah, yeah. They, would say, they would say that we need people to be rewarded for, mm. for
3: spending time in education and the cost that that involves and all mm. that. It's a, it's a good point. If you want to create incentives to study, for instance, it's always when it comes to economic economic behavioral economics you know you want to put the incentives really close to the behavior you want to incentivize so you know to say that you know 20 years from now uh, if you go into this profession you will have a slightly more lower marginal tax rate that has really small <laughs> impact on the education when you're 20 years old so if you want to people to go into studying then you should increase CSN student allowances yeah (laughs) you should not introduce tuition fees which a lot of right-wing parties are you know at least thinking about and you should rather increase the, the student allowances and that has a much stronger incentive on the behavior you want to incentivize than say that something will happen 20 years down the road We'll invite Sarko in sometime and have that discussion with them.
2: (laughs) Can I jump in and ask a little on on the same theme of the way Sweden's taxation system is formed? Because, you know, as you were working with Magdalena Andersson for, you know, the first term and yet the reforms to tax if anything worked in the other way it was removing tax from marginal
3: tax and is there a wish within
2: the social democrats to do a reform on this or are they
3: quite happy with how it is now first i should say during the first four years we had a more progressive tax agenda where taxation of higher incomes were slightly increased for instance as well as we also cut like rotavdrag uh, and we also uh, reduced, you know, some what you could uh, claim as a ruto dog etc., etc. I think I am critical that we 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 can, especially over the years we worked with the, the centre party and the liberal party, we could have done more. That was when the van got the highest marginal tax rate was cut.
2: Maybe that was after 2018. Yeah, sorry, sorry about yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs>
3: Important for me. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What does ELO think about international talent? What should Sweden be doing to attract international talent? Do
3: you see the value in it? We have no problem with attracting international talent where there is a need for it. I mean, in our sectors, the ELO union sectors, there we've had a problem with importing labor to uh, unqualified positions where we actually have a workforce that is unemployed and, and and is ready to take these jobs. so we've been pretty critical of labor migration in these sectors but at the same time we've been very clear that should be based on an assessment of the of the labor market in this segment so we want to see more flexibility when it comes to qualified labor and less when it comes to these uh, more unqualified positions. And we think that the problem with the system at the moment, why it produces these very strange outcomes for, especially for high qualified uh, skilled skilled labor, is that we're trying to fit everything into the same regulation. Before we had the system where the trade unions and all the parties were much more involved in saying that, you know, migration to this sector is totally fine. Mm. Nothing to worry about. So there you could have much more leeway and not be as strict with the rules and regulations in that and have different set of principles, for instance, when it comes to visas. And then you could be uh, applying different rules for, for other sectors where this was uh, this was less tight. Kind of. Isn't there a danger, though, with, with
2: that kind of system that it doesn't adapt to a changing economy where the kinds of jobs that exist change no the there's... opposite
3: it's just opposite because it's it, it's the thing is when you try to write laws you, you always need to be very like clear and everyone is treated the same and kind of this is the whole strength of the kind of Swedish model is that you have much more in in bargaining and much more in the it's just sorted out by the parties and mm. that creates much more flexibility for different sectors in the economy you can, you can treat you know problems and adapt much more and that is why i believe that this you know uh, uh, juridification we call it legalization no you you just introduce more legislation in this area and try to solve everything by more exact laws that stipulate how you treat all these different special cases Mm. That is very hard to do.
2: So this is where the Swedish model, where you have employers and unions negotiating about what they need, you say that that just that adds a, a level of flexibility yeah. that, that legislation yeah. doesn't allow. I have a question that's maybe only vaguely related, but um, the migration minister told us a couple of weeks ago that the government has no plans to move forward with the um, labour market testing directive that the previous government issued. What's Elu's?
3: view of that i i didn't know what has happened in this field so but uh, i assume we think that sounds very bad (laughs) Uh, but but at the same time the the current government has also said that they will introduce this wage floor for migration we think that is probably not super great not the best way of handling it but at the same time you know it would produce a lot of the same outcomes we think Because it's mostly low-paid labor that we want to exclude, kind of. So um, we want labor market testing, but uh, this is some kind of second, third best option.
0: So before the 2022 elections, the moderate party promised to pause Sweden's mortgage payment requirement in the same way that it was paused in the early stages of the pandemic. And this was something you agreed with, but the government hasn't actually followed through on this. Do you still think the government should remove the mortgage payment requirement until the economy is back on a more stable footing?
3: Yes, we, we see several problems with this amortization requirement, which is the that you need to amortize know you need to amortize on your debt with one percent if you have between 50 and 70 percent of debt compared to your house value or your apartment value and then you need to do two percent over 70 percent and then you need to do one percent extra depending on your debt to income level the thing is that firstly in this situation we're at the moment the amortization requirement was introduced to reduce risk in households basically to to keep debt levels a bit lower and therefore reducing the risk the thing is that at the moment when people are very squeezed by high uh, high costs uh, of living generally the demand that they also need to amortize is also a risk kind of because that increases the, the squeeze even and and might in worst case scenario result in them being forced to for instance move or sell their own so no, it was know.
0: fundamentally a good thing to introduce this requirement but in tough times like these it might be a good idea to sort of to remove it to remove it
3: that that is one way of looking at it, that we think for, and also you know they were introduced in order also to keep house prices going up Uh, keep them from going up so in this case when you have clearly falling prices maybe that need is not there as well so that that is one thing so that is like the short term you know uh, keeping money in the pockets of 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 households uh question so there during the pandemic they had the relief they stated clearly that anyone that wanted to pause their amortization could do that and that resulted in basically like five percent of the lenders, the borrowers, is pausing their marginalisation. So it's not a huge need, where it was not a huge need during the pandemic. But for those five percent, it's very important. So now they said that you know high electricity bills, etc., can give you uh, allow you to pause your amortization. So they they created some kind of vent kind of for, for this. But for the banks, this is not really as clear as it was during the pandemic. It's not really clear what qualifies us. So homeowners, as, homeowners
0: have to speak directly to their bank and say that they need this.
3: And it's not relief. clear that the banks treat them the same. Same, and the banks are also worried that this becomes a, you know, some kind of competitive advantage. That some will start to use, uh, use this as a, you know, argument for, for you know, you borrow from us, we we will be very, you know, give you a lot of leeway with your amortization. That is one thing. But the thing is, our. More fundamental criticism of the amortization requirement has been that when you have super low interest rates, it's good that people amortize because it makes sense. It's not, it's not to ask too much and it probably balances the development a bit more. The thing is that when you go and borrow money for your house, most banks, they check if you can pay an interest rate of 7%. So that is what they control that your economy can handle, your, your finances can mm-hmm. handle. But if you were also you know demanded to, to amortize two percent per year, for instance, that means that you need to, to actually be able to pay nine percent mm-hmm. on your mortgage each year in order to, to be allowed to borrow. And this is the case that a lot of LO households, their wages are not high enough to qualify for this with this very you know, nine percent is that's mm-hmm. a lot it's a lot. The mm-hmm. thing is that. You know, this world of paying 9% on your mortgage, it's very hard to see that materialize because the need for... The amortization, the demand of amortization, that is a result of the low rate interest rate economy. We didn't have that in the 70s and 80s and 90s where interest rate was much higher. Then there was no need to demand of people to amortize because they don't want to borrow too much money even though because the interest rates are high. So this dampens the demand itself. So why we would have a demand of amortization on 2% if the interest rate goes up to 6 7 makes no sense we we should not have that so therefore to test that case for each borrower or each people that want to borrow money is i think a bit too much and also i think that when at least when it comes to to our households with with lower incomes that it really uh, adds to them being excluded from the the housing market a bit more than the main part excluding them from housing the housing market in in stockholm for instance that is The low wages, I mean, uh, they're being priced out of the market all the time because they don't have as much money as their competitors in the bids. But this adds to it further.
2: On the other hand, though, isn't there a problem? We we, we interviewed people this week on The Local who were already... In negative equity, their house prices was the value of their house was less than their mortgage. In an environment like that, isn't an amortisation requirement good to prevent more people finding themselves in that situation?
3: But I think it's good that people amortise, especially when the rates are low. Uh, So, Mm. so you already have the we call it the debt uh, ceiling. You can't borrow more than eighty-five percent of your your home. So you have a, a limit on how much you can borrow, and you have. Also, you can demand people to amortize, mm. but it's the problem that you demand of them to be prepared to amortize even in the 7% level right. e- economy. That is is excluding people from the market more than they need to. And the thing is that even in this environment where, that we're at at the moment, owning your home is, is you know uh, a good deal compared to renting a new, newly produced rental apartment, for instance, the rents are so high. Mm. And that's due to the service, partly due to the service level being higher in the rental apartment. You can actually call someone if your fridge go, breaks down and, <laughs> and stuff, and that, that is a good thing. Yeah. But uh, yeah. therefore, you know, you sometimes force people to stay in a very more expensive home solution mm. compared to what they what could be available to them due to uh, these credit restrictions. So it's important that we, you know. We, we don't say that, you know, because the option is not often, you know, then I don't buy a house. I mean, mm. then, then you need to live somewhere else. And, and what's the cost of that? So you, mm. it's not, uh, not that clear. Okay?
0: That brings us to the end of this bonus episode of Sweden in Focus, featuring more from our interview with Peter Gerlach. This podcast also featured the locals James Savage, Richard Orange and Emma Lovegrain. I'm Paul O'Mahony and we'll be back again on Saturday with a regular episode of the podcast. Until then, take care. That's all for this week's free edition of Sweden in Focus.